Good morning. Really appreciate Tim speaking the last couple of Sundays so I could get ready for Hydro 2012. We had a great weekend. But it's good to be back and be with you and be in the book of Acts. Today we're going to look at uh, chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. And it uh, focuses on a very decisive break between Paul and Barnabas as uh, they are preparing to return and see all of the people and places of their first journey. And John Mark is at the very center of it. You know, if there was a scouting report on John Mark, it would be that he is most likely to succeed. I mean, this guy is expected to do great things for God. Perhaps you remember that when the Lord in Acts chapter 12 released Peter from prison, the people were gathered in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And there in that house, Possibly, you know, the whole 120 plus uh, and certainly more believers were praying for Peter's release. And when he came to the gate, uh, there was a servant girl who went to the gate and she recognized Peter's voice, which tells you Peter was a frequent visitor. It also tells you that since she had some Uh, assistants and servants such as this young lady that she was a lady of some means that so many could gather in her house uh, tells us even more about the size and means and she is John Mark's mother and Mark was probably there when Peter returned from prison remember the upper room Back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, over 120 gathered, those earliest believers. And it was there that they were gathered when the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was was there uh, when they picked a replacement for Judas. That was probably Mary's house. And Mark was probably there. It's... Probably the upper room where Jesus washed the disciples' feet and had a meal, a Passover, uh, a, you know, remembrance meal with his disciples. Um, that would be natural that they, after Jesus' death and then those uh, many appearances in that 40 days and then his exaltation, you know, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that they would gather in such a place where they had such an intimate and special time with Jesus. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? It's thought that Mark was the young man who fled the arrest of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, uh, wearing only a sheet, and that he was tending the family garden asleep in the watchtower and awakened by the commotion of Jesus' arrest. I mean, why else would an odd detail like that be included? 
unless the author himself had that personal experience and it becomes a, a note to his presence at such a vital time. Mark, John Mark, is the author of Mark. Remember when Barnabas and Paul went to Jerusalem and on to Antioch? They were commissioned by the church at Antioch, the Holy Spirit, specifically identified them in Acts 13.5 and were told that they went on to proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And Mark was with them as their assistant, their attendant, their helper, and was engaged in the ministry that was going on. He was vital to that very first mission of the early church to Gentiles as a focus and aim of the attention of the gospel. That's remarkable. No pun intended. Not only did John Mark end up writing the first gospel, but the three great men of the early church, Barnabas, Peter, and the apostle Paul, all claimed Mark important to them and the work of the Lord that they were doing. In fact, I guess you could say that in some ways, their progress in the Lord was aided and helped by John Mark. Barnabas, of course, claimed him as his cousin and his protege. Peter called him my son and was his affectionate disciple. And in Paul's last letter, at least extant or that we know of, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, he writes to Timothy, bring Mark, he's helpful to me in my ministry. That's how Mark ended. But that's not altogether how he started. If you have your Bible open to chapter 15, let's look at verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. What happened? There has been a lot of ink spilt on trying to get a bead, uh, a, a clearer picture of what happened back in Pergus of Pamphylia. You'll remember they sailed from Antioch to Cyprus. They worked their way across the island of Cyprus where they came 
to the proconsul Sergius Paulus. There, from there, and at the time we mentioned that Sergius Paulus probably recommended that they go on to Pamphylia in that area up in the area of Antioch. They sailed and they landed at probably Perga right in that area. And it was at that point that John Mark said, I'm not going any further. Well, I don't know that he said those words, but you know what I mean. And it's interesting, the word used there has captured the fascination of scholars because on the one hand, it can be, be very stern and it can, it can mean to abandon. If, if we have negative associations with the word apostasy, well, the word apostasy is, apostasy is arrived from this term, this term, to, to abandon. But it can also, on the softer side, uh, just mean to return, to depart. So we, we don't know exactly, but we do know now from what Paul is saying that it was something pretty serious. In verse 38, Paul insisted as some translations have it, and scholars would agree, insisted that they should not take this one, I'm going to translate this quite literally, they should not take this one along with them, him who deserted them at Pamphylia and did not go with them to the work now, I know the word work has a lot of negative associations sometimes with us. Uh, if your work is a joy, then that's a great gift. But for some of us, it's a drudgery, or we associate drudgery or things difficult, things that we don't want to do, things that bore us and tire us, etc. But here the work is associated with the work of Jesus Christ the sharing of the gospel and the good news of what God has done in Jesus' death and resurrection. In verse 39, we're told Paul and Barnabas are in a sharp disagreement. An emotionally pointed difference of opinion over Mark's usefulness or suitability or ability to undertake the work. Because what did he do? He abandoned or departed the work. So how should we see Paul? And how should we see Barnabas here? I, I don't think we have to be... Uh, I, I have to admit, you know, you have your heroes and when they don't perhaps live up to your expectations... It's disheartening, but when we look at our own lives, even after years of walking with the Lord, we still find ourselves in situations where we disagree with one another, and it becomes an issue of pointed difference. Paul and Barnabas differ over an issue here. Should we see Paul as harsh? for opposing Mark's participation after some two years had elapsed? Doesn't he get a second chance? What about the gospel of grace? 
Or should we credit Paul for elevating the priority of God's work, a work Mark abandoned at the time? Did Paul's allegiance to God's work influence Mark's turnaround? If at this point Paul said, you know, this is not a light matter. This is a huge undertaking. A lot is at stake. I have no hard feelings for you, but you're not proven. In fact, your reputation at this point disqualifies you. Too much is at stake. And maybe that jolted Mark. Maybe Mark woke up and said, you know, there are some things that are highly important, even more important than me. And that's God's work. The things of God. And God's work doesn't just take place at church or at an office or with a title. It, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we're all, all of us engaged. Or at least, let me rephrase that. God wants us to, to realize that he wants to work through us right where we're at. Our homes are a mission field. Our friends are a mission field. Our work, our neighborhood. To be an ambassador for Christ, to be an example. And yes, that has to come from within. Recognizing what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and a life of faith and trust. But that's where it begins. What about Barnabas? Should we see Barnabas' insistence on taking his cousin as a family partiality? Maybe Barnabas knows he's not quite ready, but wants to give him this second chance, thinks he's redeemable. You know, Barnabas is the encourager of second chances. In fact, it was Barnabas in a way that could be seen as rescuing Paul at a time when his reputation was kind of beyond repair with early Christians. All they could remember was the persecutor of the church and Barnabas went and got him. Hmm. Can they both be right? Paul was, if Mark wasn't ready. Barnabas was, Mark was certainly worth getting ready, and I think Paul would agree with that. But the timing may have been wrong. Maybe Mark had already made some significant changes and was a different man, but Paul just felt that now was not the time because he was not proven to him and he felt this this task and this undertaking was too important and it hinged on a man who could really carry his own weight. I don't know exactly what happens. Nobody does. We just can't see into it through what evidence we have. But we do know Mark blew it. He did. And Luke's details imply that Paul sees it right. But we know Mark got on track and finished well, don't we? That's where we come in. And that's the focus of our attention right now. This morning, because if there's something for us here, and I believe there's a lot, it starts with those realizations that sometimes we have to do a gut check 
Sometimes, yeah, we're embarrassed or we're ashamed or, or perhaps we've gotten it all together, but somebody else remembers something that we've done that is not so honoring, not something we're proud of. And sure, it's not right for them to hold that in their heads, but they don't have anything else to change that or convert that perspective of us. And so we're kind of stuck in that situation. We're, at that moment, we're in a situation where we can begrudge that person for holding a wrong view of us or saying, you know what, your opinion of me is incorrect. I'm a better person than that. You, deserve, you need to give me some grace. You need to give me a second chance. We can let all that stuff crowd our mind, all the what should be's of our outlook on ourselves. But the reality is, is that sometimes, no matter what should be, we have to start with where we're at. And that means starting with God. And that means trusting him right where we're at. I have found that, and you have to understand me, um, of course I'm a very different person now, but I've got a long ways to go. I'm still learning and I'm still changing. And just like you, uh, there are things each week that I'm not proud of. It might be an attitude. It, it might be selfishness. It might be self-centeredness. It might be a point of pride. It, you know, I don't have to give a litany of my own faults and failings. Just uh, take a moment and look into your own heart. Think about your own week. And you can probably see things where <laughs> one of my favorite quotes, uh, I could have done that better. I could have done that in the Lord. I could have done that by trusting him. I could have gotten my eyes off myself. But I used to be very insecure. And we all, you know, for whatever reasons, influences in our lives, background. Um, and I got to tell you, I was very sensitive uh, because I was searching for acceptance. I wanted to be liked. Boy, high school was just, uh, you know, three years of trying to be liked, accepted, a part of the, you know, group. And I came to Christ in desperation. I don't know that others would have seen me that way at all. But that's the way I was inside. A lot of what they saw wouldn't have corresponded to what was real inside. I was walking with the Lord for a number of years, and, and yet I was still vulnerable to other people's opinions of me. I mean, it would just kind of sink me into a, a, a pity party, uh, a little depression, a little funk. I hadn't planned to say this, but... Um, you know, we sang that song, Speak to Me, Lord, and I just feel like this is what the Lord is nudging me to say. Maybe this is where we can have a point, some point of contact in principle or in, uh, in case in point. But I found, as I was growing in Christ, that the best way for me to change 
those opinions that troubled me so much was to not fix my gaze on what people were saying, which would kind of stick me in the past and in a funk and in a depression, because you can't change the past. You can't change those things by going back or fretting over something that's past or kind of becoming stuck and not moving and just brooding and being self-absorbed and feeling sorry that somebody thinks badly about you. I discovered that the best way to change the past, to reverse the past, is to move with God in the present. And that changes my future. Now here's something else. When it changes my future, it even can cause people who had a negative opinion of me to doubt their view of me. Because now they see I'm not like that. Or I'm less like that. Or they see that I'm changing. And that's why I say to reverse the past, trust God in the present. Commit your way to him. Start depending on him. Lean on him. Now your experience may not be exactly like mine, but maybe you can draw a point of application in some way for your life from this this basic concept. I've just kind of magnified or made the concept clearer by illustrating it with my own life, but this is just a basic truth of the gospel. You know, God changes your future, your past, by living with him and trusting him in the present. And the fact, I, 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 I've shared this too many times perhaps, but it, you know, it bears repeating because it's so real. I mean, it's reality. The only time you can trust God is right now. The present, this moment. You can hear him speaking to you. You can sense his spirit moving in your heart or your mind can be elsewhere. I've been in places I go, you know, I've, I've been in, involved in following the Lord and in, in ministry uh, since really technically 1973. That's a long time. I've heard a lot of sermons myself. I hear every one of my own, but I hear a lot of others too. And of course, when you spend your life getting educated, you can... You know, you get a, an advanced degree and you get your master's and your PhD and you teach and, and then you go out and you listen to somebody speak and you sit there in the back and sometimes you can't turn off your critical faculties and you're listening to that pastor and you can become quite um, critical. Oh, I disagree with you there. Oh, I can't believe you said that. Oh, if you only knew more. I mean, there are those kinds of things that we can do. I, I fight that. But if that's true for me, then I figure it's true for you on any given Sunday, too. And when we do that, we're not living in the moment. We're not squeezing. Because, you know, the Lord uses 
imperfect people. If that's not true, then we need to go home. We need to shut the doors. Sell out. Give the money to feed the poor because we've got nothing better. That's the way I see it. It's always about living in the moment. And there are three ways that I think they just come to mind. And I, I want to be straight up with you. The fact of the matter is, is that I don't know exactly. There's no uh, handbook for pastors or preachers that we can turn to that you don't know about. The fact of the matter is, I don't know exactly how Mark turned it around. But as you saw, although not definitive, we do have these, these glowing remarks from Barnabas, from Peter, from Paul, at the end of their ministries and later, we do have the Gospel of Mark, which is, I think, pretty firmly attributed to this Mark for, for solid reasons. And he must have gone on to these great things because something happened. And I think when something happens like that, it always involves turning to the Lord. It always involves getting right with. So the first thing is start over with God. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to start over, that, that God, don't get me wrong. The point is, it's kind of like go back to basics. Get centered, you know? Sometimes we can become very religious and churched and all of that. And God, he's not at the center of it all. So sometimes in difficult times, we have to kind of step back and say, Lord, I'm gonna, I want to walk very closely. I want to walk in your very footsteps. In sports, when a guy gets into a, or a girl gets into a funk in, in, in their area of specialty, then they get back to the basics, the basic mechanics, and there's no greater mechanic than starting over with God and committing your reputation to God. Commit your reputation to God. You know, are we worried so much about what people think about us or doing what's right? And third, expect from God what others can't give. Um, there's a lot here, but I just want to touch on one thing in each of these areas, like in starting over with God. Here are just a, a few tips. And, and this may seem so practical that you might even think, well, do I need God for this? In my opinion, yes. First, admit you're wrong if you did wrong. You know, if, if you did something wrong, see it clearly, admit it, frankly and honestly. Um, learn to say these words, and you might want to write these down because they're often hard to remember and they're even harder to say. You're right. I'm wrong. Four words that can change your life. Change your marriage. I'm not kidding. Change your marriage. Change friendships. Change work relationships. You know what gets us into trouble? Denying and not seeing clearly what we did. In fact, isn't the way to salvation is seeing ourselves clearly and recognizing what, what we've done and what we're really like? 
Isn't that the heart of repentance that causes us to realize we need God? We need his grace. We need his power. Uh, this is from a newspaper. I want to read this to you. <clears throat> it's titled, Driver Who Beeped. Driver who beeped at me for going out of turn at four-way stop, 13th and Belmont, 6 p.m. Thursday, 20th. I was wrong. You were right. Sorry. <laughs> I love that. You know, it, when you are grateful for God's grace, and when it grows gratitude, it also grows humility. When you're grateful, you begin to realize how much others, and above all, the Lord, does for you. That you, you aren't who you are without so many helping hands all around you. I mean, I, as a pastor, I'm, I'm a person of focus, but I don't want to ever forget that that's just a position it is a team effort. We have such wonderful staff people at every level and so many wonderful volunteers. And what grace is, is a community accomplishment in the strength of the Lord. Well, we could multiply that many times over in our own lives. And when that kind of humility starts to emerge because we realize that we aren't so hot by standing on our own. It's by linking arms with others and depending on the Lord that we are who we are in life. And that will also free us up to be more frank about our faults and our shortcomings and our failures. It was so hard for me yesterday. The Giants just beat up so bad on my Giants. What was that? I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't, I have, my hearing is really. But it felt so much better, you know, to just get out in front of all my Dodger fan friends and say, wow, you really whooped us today. You know, we have a black eye. In fact, I even wrote on Facebook, I said, our unis are orange and black, but today our eye is too. <laughs> but you know, it just makes it so much easier. So much easier. It's hard work, but try it. Maybe, maybe Mark did that first with God. And then that began to be the environment of his life. And it changed him. And he started to be used of God in profound ways. So that in time, Paul himself counts him as a guy who's especially useful. And when others have abandoned him, he says, bring Mark with you, Timothy. He's useful to me and the ministry. Wow, what a turnaround. And that can be your story, too. It certainly has been mine again and again and again. Commit your reputation to God. A damaged issue in image is not the issue. In fact, if you want to turn that image around, as I said, then you've got to get your eyes off the past and start walking with the Lord in the present. I remember um, in 1973, I started as an intern at First Baptist Church in Modesto. And I was the first intern in small groups. 
And uh, at that time, we had 50 small groups. It was a big responsibility. And our small group pastor, uh, I loved working with him. But it got back to me secondhand. And I don't think my small group leader was supposed to know that I knew. I don't think he did know. But it got back to me that in someone's hearing, he said, well, John's just not available for ministry. I'm not going to explain why he said that. What's important is what I did with it. I could let that devastate me, and that was where I was vulnerable and susceptible. But I chose to act and not react. If you can, there's a little slogan for you that you should paste around or just paste on your heart. Act. Don't react. And act in the strength and power of the Lord. Think less of titles and status and think more of serving God. You know, when, when things like that happen, it, it's, it hurts our feelings. But if you do the right thing, you'll have right feelings. Think about that. If you do the right thing when your feelings are hurt, you'll feel, feel the right things, and it'll change you. And expect from God what others can't give. I can't put into words how important it is to know God's acceptance and approval. Each one of us has to wrestle with that. But if you really take his grace to heart, you realize that he loves you as much as his one and only son. John Piper's book on, uh, you know, the pleasure of the Christian life is not something we read about. But I love the fact that he emphasizes, he spends so much time showing us how much delight and pleasure God has. And that his delight and pleasure should be delight and pleasure among his children. I am a sinner. That means I fail others and I fail God. But I don't let my failures get me down because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I take that cross and what Jesus did on that cross very seriously. That cross means nothing to me if it doesn't mean something for my failings. And when I fail, what I see in the cross and I know from his word, is that God wants me to get my eyes off my failings, get back up on my feet, and start serving him right here and right now. That's what the cross is for. Not for a bookkeeper to sit in some dark and dismal, dingy room keeping score. And some of us do that. And some of us, sometimes we can't get out of our funks over failings until we've done some good things to eclipse the bad things. That's not what the cross is all about. That's about works. That's about performance and self-accomplishment. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross so that you and I would never again be tethered or tackled or defeated by our failings. But that's not just so that we get to keep on doing whatever we want. That's so that we're freed 
to move with God and realize that he delights in us, that he sees in us something redeemable, and he wants us to magnify that and show that in our life, in our spirit, in our thought life, in our outlook. That joy should be exemplified in his church and among his people. That's something no one else can give. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a situation like Mark's? Or like I shared about myself, or maybe in your own life. This may not be relevant in, in specific to you today. But certainly a failing or a shortcoming, something that you want to fix, you can reverse that by turning to God and living and serving and walking with him. Put your faith in him. Faith isn't just trusting him to spring you know, out of heaven and make it all right for you. It's about adjusting outlook, attitude, disposition, because you've got your eyes on him. You've got his perspective. You're going to trust him in the meantime. And you're going to take the moment you've got right now and make a difference in the way you deal with the people God brings into your life. And you're not going to let the past stick you in some other attitude or situation. You're going to say, wait a second. Right now, this is where life is at with these people. And maybe that rumor about me or what was said legitimately because I blew it in some way, I'm, that'll take care of itself as I start dealing with life right now. And you've got to imagine that. You've got to use your imagination. Thomas Edison used to say his deafness was his greatest blessing. A blessing because it saved him from having to listen to reasons why things he imagined couldn't be done. I read about Curtis Carlson, founder of the Carlson Companies. He attributed his success to how he, to the fact that he imagined how things can be. He said, I'm not distracted by how things are. How much more should we imagine that what God can do through us and in us and with us through great hardships if we put our faith in God and the new things that he wants to do? I don't have a mic, so you stand with me? I hope thinking about Mark's failure and then his finish speaks with you this week as you think about your own. And who you are in Christ, I hope you'll imagine. God has given you imagination that he's tweaked by things that are out of this world. Things that nobody else in the world or in the history of writing, teaching, philosophy, or religion could ever say to you. Set your hearts on that. Let it burst your minds with expectation and hope and things that nobody else could ever imagine except for the spirit at work in your life. Be joyful right now. And as you go from this place in his name and in his power, the ministry starts. God wants to use you. Start with those little things. Start with 
mothers. You do smile upon us. The cross proves it. The resurrection assures it. May we go in your power, your love, your strength, your wisdom. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.